Let's take a moment before we begin this morning, this short series, uh, to call upon the Lord in prayer. Would you join me in doing that, please? Father in heaven, we give you honor and praise and glory today, as Les read a few moments ago in Psalm 113. Lord, may your name be glorified. Father, conquer in our lives. Cause us to be more than conquerors. And Lord, we pray today that you would open our hearts and minds to the message that you have for us. Lord, we live in a state of perplexity. Things are in disarray and getting worse in our society. Father, we desperately need to understand what is at the root of these various things that are taking place. Help us this morning as we study your word to make sense of it all. For we ask you this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, to say that we live in perplexing times would be a gross understatement. Do you agree? The spirit of coercion and oppression has taken deep root here in America, something that many of us never dreamed would happen. Whether it's the vaccine, masks, transgender activism, you name it. There are people ready and willing to use force and coercion to propound their ideas and to force others to embrace them. Friends, there are voices from the past who saw this day coming or at least saw its potential. And this morning I'll begin with one. We can do a who said it quiz. Here's the quotation. Get ready, get your listening ears on. This gentleman said, You and I are increasingly told that we have to choose between left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest that there is no such thing as left or right. There is only up or down. Up to man's age-old dream, the ultimate in individual freedom consistent with law and order, or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism. And regardless of their sincerity or their humanitarian motives, those who would trade our freedom for security have embarked on this downward course. Okay, who said it? Was it A, Donald Trump, B, Abraham Lincoln, C, Ronald Reagan, or D, Barack Obama? Okay, how many say A, Trump? No takers. Good. <laughs> he said lots of things, but this wasn't one of them. How about Lincoln? Anybody for Lincoln? No takers on Lincoln. Oh, one for Lincoln. Okay, all right. We'll come back to you, Don. <laughs> how many say Reagan? Boy, lots of people say Reagan. Okay. Any for Obama? Okay, a couple. 
Well, the correct answer, uh, well, before I go, before I give you the correct answer, I want to just say, Don, you're, you should not be faulted for choosing Lincoln since I borrowed a phrase from the Gettysburg Address for my title this morning. But the answer, the correct answer actually is not Lincoln. I should know that uh, Gettysburg Address uh, fairly well. Uh, I had to write it out a couple of times in the fourth grade for some minor misbehavior. <laughs> in fact, it came to the place where I kept a handwritten copy ready in my social studies book for the next infraction. You should have seen the look on Mrs. Bush's face when I whipped that out and handed it to her uh, after another minor uh, disciplinary measure. She was quite surprised. She was also my neighbor, which made the situation a little more difficult. She had easy access to my parents. But the correct answer is not Lincoln. It is Reagan. He said those words when I was a six-month-old infant, but I think they're even more applicable today than they were 57 years ago. The conflict between liberty and tyranny is indeed age-old. The great majority of people, including Reagan himself, are unaware of its origin and true nature, though. Most people think it is a purely political conflict, but they are mistaken, friends. This controversy is spiritual. Oh yes, it has political implications, but the controversy itself is inherently spiritual. And in this short series of messages, it is my purpose to explore this question. What would society look like if God were in direct control of it? Or maybe we should flip it around and say, what would society look like if God were completely removed from it? I think we're perhaps getting a partial answer to that as we look around us today. But today's message will examine what we Adventists call the great controversy and see that the principles of this conflict permeate human society. The second part of the series will contrast two nations from Scripture namely ancient Egypt and ancient Israel. In the story of the Exodus, we discover an example of a situation in which God engaged directly in the development of a nation. So we will understand to a great extent what principles would guide his society if he were to be in complete control of it. And of course, as we look forward to the heavenly society, what kind of society will that be? It will be the society in which God has complete control and oversight. What will that look like? We can get a window into it by looking at ancient Israel in contrast to Egypt. And then, in final, finally, in part three, we will examine the end-time implications of God's plan for society. We will discover that liberty and oppression will come into a final, direct conflict in the last days of Earth's history, and that God will intervene to deliver his people from the satanically inspired tyranny that will be universal all over the world. He will, God will intervene to take his people to heaven where they can enjoy the perfect society that he has created, which is conceived in liberty. So I want to begin this morning by the scripture reading that Les read a few moments ago. I want to begin where our Lord Jesus Christ himself began when he was invited to have the sermon at his home church 
in Nazareth so long ago. So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 61. And we want to look at verses 1 through 3. I'm going to reread these. Please follow along carefully. And I want you to read it like you've not read it before. Read it as though this is the first time you're reading it. Read it with this idea in mind. How do these principles impact society? Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. How many of you agree that this is a beautiful passage? I, I, I don't wonder why Jesus chose this uh, to begin that sermon. Jesus began his Nazareth message with these verses that speak of his own anointing as the Messiah, which means anointed one. Now here's the question that Jesus' hearers should have asked and that we must not fail to ask. What was the Messiah, what was Jesus anointed to do? I believe we have the answer in this very passage, which was why he chose it. Let's start with the one who anoints him. Who was the one who anointed Christ? By what person of the Godhead was he anointed? The Spirit of the Lord God. It's right, he is right there in Isaiah 61 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he says. This is a reference to his anointing. He was anointed to do something. Well, I find it interesting that the Spirit of the Lord is also associated with a concept that's near and dear to our hearts here in America. Because it says, uh, Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Have you ever read that text? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So when the Spirit of the Lord is the one who is anointing the Messiah, can you uh, begin to imagine what the, the mission of the Messiah is? Is it not to bring liberty and to proclaim liberty? And this is exactly what Isaiah 61.1 teaches us. He is to do what? He has anointed me to, what is, what is the next phrase there, friends? Bring good tidings to the to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And to do what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What is the what's the picture that we get here? We we, are, we look in on a people who are being oppressed. We look in on a people who are being held in prison. We look in on a people who are brokenhearted. We look in on a people who have lost hope. 
And here comes this Messiah, this anointed one, to come and to bring deliverance to those people. To proclaim deliverance, to proclaim liberty. They were no longer to remain in bondage, but they were to be free. What good news is this? And not only that, but verse 2 tells us that he was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I believe this is a reference. I, I, may, I, could, I will, will stand to be corrected if, if that's necessary. But I believe this is a, a reference to a jubilee-type experience. The acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, it's time for God to act and to bring about this release. And in connection with that, we find also a reference to the wrath of God in verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see how those two are connected? Deliverance and release, but also vengeance. What's going on here, friends? Well, God is not simply going to deliver his people, but he will also mete out justice upon those who have oppressed and discouraged them, held them in captive. He said, he says in verse 2, that he was to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. These things are things that happen when people are set free who have been in bondage for a long time. There's rejoicing. There is praise. All these things. So, this is a message of liberation. It is a message of deliverance. And who is the Messiah, friends? Who is Jesus? According to this passage, he is a liberator. He is a deliverer. The second coming of Christ, to which we look forward, is the culmination of the battle that he won at the cross. Even the reference to the vengeance of God is directly related to this conflict between liberty and tyranny. The instigators and supporters of tyranny will then be the subjects of God's wrath because of their crimes against God and against their fellow men. So here's the point of the scripture reading. Christ's own preaching of the gospel was couched in terms of a restoration of liberty from the bondage of sin. What does that tell us about the nature of the great controversy and what does it tell us about its implications for society? Well, to examine that question further, we really need to look at the great controversy as an effort to effect a coup. I've said this before from this very pulpit, but the rebellion of Satan in heaven was an attempted coup. It was a, an attempt to change the nature of the government in heaven. It was a revolution attempted, but it was unsuccessful in heaven. But to consider this further, we need to turn to the 14th chapter of Isaiah. So stay in the prophet Isaiah, but now go to chapter 14. We are familiar with a part of this chapter, but there's more here than typically meets our eye. 
We're familiar with verses 12 through 14. Many of us have read that passage numerous times. Verses 12 through 14 says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, said the rebellious angel. Now we're familiar with that part, but we often fail to read what comes before it. Isaiah chapter 13 is a... uh, condemnation of Babylon. And chapter 14 specifically brings out God's thoughts about the king of Babylon. Let's begin with verse 3. It shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. Can I stop right there for a moment? Ask anyone that grew up in a communist-dominated country about these words. Sorrow, fear, and hard labor. And they will immediately begin to tell you stories about people that they know that were sent to labor camps. They will tell you about the fear that permeated their entire existence. Fear of saying something that would allow their neighbors to snitch on them and turn them into the government. Sorrow at their state of hopelessness. All this ought to sound very familiar to us and would sound very familiar to us if we had grown up under those circumstances. In fact, I think there's a reason why when the Soviet Union opened up in the early 90s, Elder Finley went over there and held meetings and meetings and people, even KGB agents, flocked to the meetings because they were so desperate for some good news, something better than what they had grown up under. No wonder the message of the Bible resonated with those people at that time. Well, let's continue in verse 4. Remember, this is speaking of the king of Babylon that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. What, a, what an amazing picture. It's a contrast. The rejoicing of God's people who break forth into singing and the ultimate fate of the oppressive ruler. Of course, this is speaking of the king of Babylon, but the message flows from all this right into the lament for Lucifer, the fallen angel. Friends, it is he Who is behind these oppressive earthly rulers? Would you say amen to this? He is the real king of Babylon. 
He is the one who is behind the oppressive regimes, even in our own generation. So what would heaven have been like then, had Lucifer been able to gain power? Well, he would have done exactly what all dictators do when they come to power. What do they, what do, they do first? Come on, friends, I'm asking you to respond. You've seen it, you've read it. What do, what do dictators do immediately when they come to power? Get rid of the opposition. That's right. Immediately eliminate or at least, at the very least, marginalize and demonize your opposition. By the way, are we seeing any of that today? Oh, yeah. He who said he would unite America when he came into his office has done little to unite, but more to divide, I fear. Had Satan had the power, he would have killed God and all those who were loyal to God. This is why Jesus referred to him in John 8, 44 in this way. Jesus said of the devil, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now you think of the oppressive regimes that we've witnessed in the la over the last century in our world. On what were they based? Two essential things. Deception and lies and force, coercion, and violence. Is this true? What would heaven have looked like if Satan had been able to gain power there? It would have looked a lot like some of the brutal regimes that we've seen in our world. Satan would have surrounded himself with an elite class of angels who would be his enforcers. He also would have deprived the inhabitants of heaven of their freedom and made them his slaves. Of course, thank God, Satan did not have the power to do all that he wanted to do. And I want to pause and, and, and point out that revolutionaries sometimes can carry forward what they would consider to be a successful revolution, but there are also many times when they do not have the power to do all that they want to do. Would you like to say hallelujah to that? Praise God. Even though he was successful in alienating a third of the angels from God, he did not have the power to overthrow the divine government. And God exiled him to protect the loyal angels and the unfallen worlds from his influence, but he did not destroy immediately these revolutionaries. You see, the universe needed time to see the development of the principles of the revolution and to understand its real nature. So the, the scene of the revolution shifted. The revolution itself, Satan's revolution, did not end, but the theater shifted to earth. And we should notice that the fall of mankind was a pivotal moment in the revolution. Would you agree? Let's read the story together. Turn please to Genesis chapter 3. 
Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here we have the first indoctrination campaign that happened on planet Earth. This is Lucifer, the revolutionary, masking himself as the serpent and presenting his satanic propaganda to Eve. Notice what happens. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. There's the first lie ever told on planet Earth. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And here's the key phrase. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan promised Eve the very same thing that he desired to have himself. Is this true? Now I want you to consider for a moment the implications of this last phrase that we are considering. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we see the promise that mankind would, through a rejection of the divine law, be able to develop an intrinsic morality. What do I mean by that? I mean a morality that is self-determined. Do you understand what I mean? You can decide for yourself, Eve, what is right and wrong. Now, we still hear those kinds of uh, sentiments uh, in our society from every level of society, spoken almost universally. You can decide for yourself what is right and wrong. In other words, people would uh, no longer be accountable to God and to his law. That's extrinsic morality. Here's the problem, though. You will be like God implies this. Not only do people have the desire to develop their own set of rules, but they also have this innate desire to impose their rules on others. After all, if you will be like God, then don't you know everything that there is to know? Aren't you someone that uh, should be respected and looked up to and that everyone should listen to? If you will be like God. In human nature, there is this innate desire to prescribe and dictate and coerce. Am I telling uh, you anything you don't already know today? And because those who have rejected God have their own God complex, they probably see themselves as being above all rule. Does this make sense? Does it help to explain some of the 
interesting phenomena we have seen of late. People prescribing rules and then uh, going at 180 degrees against their own rules when they get to various places. And to go further, you would be inclined to excuse others who break your rules as long as they were useful to you in your quest to be like God. But you would come down with force and coercion on all who break your rules if they disagreed with you or were not useful to you. Do you understand the implications of what it means when Satan promised Eve that she would be like God, knowing good and evil? These are all implications of that statement. You will determine what's right and wrong, but more than that, you are like God, so therefore why shouldn't you take the power into your own hands and force other people to conform to what you think? Now, we're not shown immediately here what the end result of these things will be. But Scripture doesn't wait long to give us a window into the future. Because if you go, just go to the next chapter, Genesis 4, we see another story, and this gives us the real implications of these things. I'll read verses 1 through 8. I hope you'll read along. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit, of the fruit of the ground, to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain shrugged his shoulders and walked off to his vegetable garden. Is that what it says? No. I wish it had said that. Or better yet, Cain got down on his knees in deep repentance and said, Lord, forgive me. But he doesn't say that either. Notice what it says. And Cain was what, everyone? Very angry. And his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now here's this fateful verse in verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. I wonder what that talk sounded like. I wonder what it looked like. Do you think there was some waving of the arms? Do you think there was raising of the voice? Do you think that there were some grimaces on the part of Cain? 
Many times we look at this story as simply a theological discussion, a theological disagreement. But friends, it goes beyond that. Abel pointed out that not only was his brother wrong in what he had brought as an offering, and that he did not have the right to make his own rules, but that he was also wrong to try to coerce his younger brother into some acknowledgement of this supposed right. It wasn't merely that Cain said, you know, Cain or Abel, I'm a liberal. I'm going to do my thing. You do your thing and let's just agree to disagree. No, it wasn't like that. Cain said to him, you need to agree that I have the right to do my own thing with God. You need to agree that my religion is equally as valid as yours. And Abel said, my brother, I'm sorry, but God says otherwise. How can I disagree with him to agree with you? Does this make sense? Abel was not being obstinate. He was not being stubborn. He was not simply advocating for his own opinion over and against that of his brother. He said simply, God told us what to do. You will do well to follow what he says. But Cain would have none of it. Cain said, unless you acknowledge my right to do as I please, you've got something else coming. But when Abel rejected Cain's effort to legitimize what he had done and to legitimize his own authority, Cain did what every tyrant since then has done. He killed him. Listen to this inspired commentary on these events. When Cain, moved by the spirit of the wicked one, saw that he could not control Abel. What was the conversation about, friends? Control. It was not merely a theological disagreement, although that was part of it. That was the foundation, the basis of the argument, but it went beyond that. Cain wanted to control his brother. He demanded that Abel do as he had done. And when Cain saw that he could not control Abel, he was so enraged that he destroyed his life. And whenever there are any who stand in vindication of the righteousness of the law of God, the same spirit will be manifested against them. It is the spirit that through all the ages has set up the stake and kindled the burning pile for the disciples of Christ. But the cruelties heaped upon the follower of Jesus are instigated by Satan and his hosts because they cannot force him to submit to their control. You want to know what makes people mad? When you will not submit to their control. That's what upsets folks. Brothers and sisters, here we see exactly what would have taken place in heaven if Satan had been allowed the opportunity to establish his kingdom there. 
It is only the restraining power of the Spirit of God that prevents these kinds of things from happening everywhere in this world today. Make no mistake, friends, Satan's plan for society is one of oppression, coercion, lies, theft, and brutality. Satan claimed that God was an oppressor and that he and his angelic sympathizers were victims. Christ, our blessed Savior, stood up to this malevolent foe and risked his own existence to forever put to rest his false claims and to make an atonement for the sins we have committed in the course of this fearful revolution. Yes, friends, the underpinning of God's plan for society comes right out of the great controversy itself. What's the word? Freedom. Liberty. Liberty for all. Freedom of choice was so important to God that he was willing to risk his own existence to protect it. Now I know what some might say in response to this. They might argue this way. No, I think God really is a tyrant because he only allows choices with, with which he is in agreement. You ever heard anybody say that? Oh, God was, <clears throat> God, God was a tyrant for kicking Satan out of heaven just for disagreeing with him. Well, I think that's a fallacious argument. <clears throat> Let me show you why I think that. Why did Satan get kicked out of heaven? Was it just for disagreeing with God? No. What did Satan's disagreement with God, what would it have resulted in? <clears throat> it would have resulted in the complete elimination of the freedom of choice for all God's creatures. Does that make sense? And God, <clears throat> because he cannot allow and will not allow because his character is one of love. He will not allow the freedom of choice to be taken away like that. And so he had to exile first the revolutionaries, and then ultimately with the support of the entire universe, he will destroy them. Why? Because they disagreed with him? No. Because their disagreement would have resulted in fear, cruelty, and did has resulted in fear, cruelty, oppression, and the removal of freedom. It is not that God only allows certain choices of which he approves. Rather, he would not allow a permanent tyrannical society to come into being. He has allowed the universe to see what the result of Satan's plan would be, but he will not allow that kind of oppressive rule to continue. He will eliminate its originator, and he will eliminate all those who have supported it. Listen to what SDA pioneer Ellen White said about this from Patriarchs and Prophets. She says, by the facts unfolded in the progress of the great controversy, God will demonstrate the principles of his rules of government. His rules of what, everyone? Government. His rules of government. Sometimes we uh, make this great controversy thing so esoteric, so philosophical, that we miss its practical implications. God has a plan for a perfect society. 
We will never have that here in this present age. Try as many people might to achieve it. But God has a plan for a perfect society. Do you support that plan? That's the question. God will demonstrate the principles of his rules of government, which have been falsified by Satan and by all whom he has deceived. His justice will finally be acknowledged by the whole world. Through the acknowledgement, though, I'm sorry, though the acknowledgement will be made too late to save the rebellious. God carries with him the sympathy and approval of the whole universe as step by step his great plan advances to its complete fulfillment. He will carry it with him in the final eradication of rebellion. What will he carry with him? The sympathy and the approval of the whole universe. It will be seen that all who have forsaken the divine precepts have placed themselves on the, on the side of Satan in warfare against Christ. When the prince of this world shall be judged, and all who have united with him shall share his fate, the whole universe as witnesses to the sentence will declare, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Revelation 15. Verse 3. So I want to close this morning by asking you a question. What kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society that is conceived in liberty? Do you want to live in freedom? Let me tell you that if you desire to live in freedom, there's something that must be eradicated from your life and from my life. And that is that, that dark thing that is inherent in human nature, that desire to make our own rules and to control others. That is what must be eradicated from our character. It is the essence of selfishness. Every sin flows from that principle right there. In fact, we'll spend some time next uh, in one of the two remaining parts of this series looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the very antithesis of totalitarianism, if you look at them. If we want to live in God's free society, what must we do? First, we must embrace Christ, our Deliverer, and our hearts must be in harmony with His, which is to allow freedom. To not try to coerce. To not try to get people to do what we want for our benefit. But rather to serve others. Is this where your heart is today, friend? If you want to be part of God's great, God's true great society, will you stand up this morning in recognition of this fact? Stand up if you want to be part of God's great society. May God help us to embrace the principle of freedom and liberty in our own lives that we might demonstrate it to everyone with whom we come into contact. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.